We covered a lot of history last week. This will be, week will be, be no exception. We're going to cover uh, a fair amount at the beginning and the end. Uh, but we have scripture from Psalm 119 and 1 Peter 2 in the middle of that uh, that we're going to give some attention to. So if you're following today, Psalm 119.63 is the primary text if you're looking along. And where we left off last week, we talked about Martin Luther a bit. We'll bring him up again here as we start. Um, he kind of is one of the major sparks of the Reformation that happened 500 years ago. Uh, October 31st, 19, or 15, 17 was uh, when he kind of kicked things off. Um, at least that's the date we kind of have, have noted historically that things changed. Uh, it kind of brings to an end a period of history too. Not Martin Luther didn't do this, but it is kind of as, as a period of history is ending that we call the Middle Ages, which lasted for about a thousand years. Roughly speaking, uh, the mid-400s to about a little after this period, uh, mid-1500s, give or take, and they're kind of divided into three different sections. Don't, by the way, buy into the myth that they're the Dark Ages. They did have dark moments, for sure, but there was an awful lot that happened in that period of time uh, that made the rest of history possible, at least where we are now. Uh, but What's interesting is, during that period, especially in those first 400 plus years of church history, there was a lot of, of theological writing and conversation that was going on within the church about what is it we actually believe, and they're kind of putting this together in writing. But by the time you get into this period that we call the Middle Ages, that Martin Luther is kind of on the end of, uh, a lot of theologians are not really asking so much the question of what do we believe, but how do we explain it? That's really the conversation that they're having. Um, you know, so if God numbers the hairs on our head, well, how many are there? Those, I mean, it's really detailed stuff they're getting into here. Uh, not that God would number the hairs on our head, but, but what does that look like? The num numerolo numerology process and things like that. Martin Luther kind of contended with those first. He was trying to contend with those when he puts his 97 theses up, not the 95, the first, the 97 theses up. They're really dealing with some of that stuff. When he gets to these 95 theses that we were talking about last week that really kick things off, where he's talking about indulgences and, and the sort of theological basis for those and if they're right or not, um, all of a sudden he's moving into territory that people weren't really moving into as much for a very long time. He's not explaining theology, he's questioning the very nature of what the theology is. Uh, and we, we've been talking then, and we're, we're going to continue to talk about one of the main issues that comes up from that questioning process from the reformers is the issue of justification. How are we saved, basically? What's the process by which this happens? Um, and we talked about justification last week, and we'll continue to do that, but we're going to take a step back from it to look at the foundation underneath it today in Scripture. Justification being that we're put right with God, and that God does this process. And so in, in looking at the, the questions that the reformers were asking, five themes really seem to have cropped up that we've held on to uh, as sort of the, the effect of the Reformation. That, that the title of the whole sermon series, For God's Glory Alone, is one of them. That that's why we exist, for God's glory alone. Today, the idea of sola scriptura, scripture alone, this is the foundation of our faith. We'll talk then in the few next three weeks about Christ alone, faith alone, and grace alone. But what scholars have pointed out, uh, Bruce Shelley puts it this way in his book, Church History in Plain Language. Highly recommended read, by the way, to you. 
uh, church history in plain language. He says the, the Reformation was really answering the same four questions the church had been trying to answer the whole time. It's just coming at them a different way. And the four questions are, how is a person saved? Uh, where does religious authority lie? What is the church? And what is the essence of Christian living? And today, as we talk about scripture, then we're in that second question very clearly. Where does religious authority lie? Is it strictly in the church? Is it in tradition? Is it in the word of God as we understand it as scripture? Where do we find that? Now, we won't get there, but that pushes you into the third question very quickly as you answer that. But when we last saw Luther then, Martin Luther, we saw him in 1517 raising quite a ruckus with these 95 theses questioning indulgences, which ultimately questioned the flow of money from where he's living in Germany down to Rome and some power between regional leaders and the Pope, and it, it's, it's big. Well, through that, he's kind of called in uh, to, to really defend himself um, locally, and that doesn't quite work out as well. And we should note that he's aware by this point that he's tapped into something pretty big because a little over 100 years before this, a guy named John Huss had done some similar things in what's now the Czech Republic, and he had been burned at the stake. Uh, and so Luther knew the stakes were pretty high here on what he's doing. So anyways, in 1520... Luther uh, receives, there's a bull of excommunication sent out by the Pope. That is, uh, it's to kick him out of the church. But it's, it's, got a, it's got a condition on it. It's sent out not just to Martin Luther by Pope Leo X, but to every, everybody, really all the German states particularly that Luther lived around. And it says uh, Luther's going to be excommunicated in 60 days unless he recants. And by the way, you should burn all of his books everybody. And so people start burning all of his books all over uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Martin Luther probably takes him almost till the end of the 60 days to receive the letter from what we can tell. When he receives the letter, he and his followers do the opposite of what's in the letter and they burn his opponent's books publicly. And Luther, almost as an afterthought, apparently throws in the papal bowl of excommunication at the end on top of the fire. A statement is clearly made by this point by Luther. So he's finally called into this thing called, and you'll love the title, the Diet of Worms. Uh, and it was, that's a council, is the word Diet Worms was where it was held uh, in the German states. And um, they, they, the, the emperor is there, Charles V, uh, some high-level church officials are there, uh, there to get him to recant or else excommunicate him. Recant what you've written against the church, against the pope. And after pushing him hard on it, he says, give me a day, we'll come back. So they give him a day of recess, they come back the next day, and this is like the World Series right here. Everybody that could possibly be there is jammed into the place or outside or listening in on this conversation. This is the biggest thing that could happen in this area at this time. And he's asked, just give us a plain and simple yes or no, do you recant, Luther? And it comes down to us in several different uh, Iterations, but this is a good one that's, of what he said. It says, Luther said, Your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced by scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust the pope or church councils, since everyone knows that they can make mistakes and contradict themselves, 
I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. I cannot and will not take back anything because it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. There are a number of uh, different accounts of the exact last phrase. Uh, nobody's sure of what that exactly is, but something could have helped me God at the end of that. There were other voices that had said similar things to what Luther said, that had questioned essentially the authority of the church and put scripture high like that. But as we pointed out last week, time, place, the invention of the printing press, a whole lot of things had come together to make Luther's voice really heard in this moment and launches us into the world of scripture as our authority over against anything else. That's where this takes us. Now the downside to the Reformation, and we can see our family tree coming up here, the downside to the Reformation, people point out, is that it explodes. All of a sudden you have all these different divisions that come about, uh, and we pointed out, remember this is online, you can find it there so you can actually read it. I know it just looks like an eye chart from where you are. But um, as you look at it, you can see that it just there's all these different divisions that come out. Anglican, Reformed, Lutheran, the radical reformers just on your right side of the tree there. Uh, an explosion. And of course, in the Evangelical Covenant Church, our denomination, we're part of this. We're way out there on the branch now. You follow the Lutheran, the Pietist, and then you see Covenant out there. We're, we're a direct descendant of this Lutheran and of the Reformation. But I want to point out that amongst all the division that can happen, the insistence on Scripture can actually bring about unity as well. So yes, there's division that occurs, but the insistence on Scripture can bring to unity. And I want to point out this morning as our, our main point that in God's Word, and I'll use that multiple ways, but let's use it as just Scripture right now. In God's Word, we find truth, unity, and true identity. So we're going to find our, our unity there because of those things. And so let's look at Psalm 119.63. And, and the reason I bring this particular passage up is because this was the, the foundational text for the first sermon when our denomination was formed in 1885, when they all got together and said, is unity even possible? The sermon has been lost to us. I was reminded again this week. Uh, but it was Psalm 119.63. And this showed the, the unity that at least in our way out there in the branch, we were looking back and saying, is there a way to go back a little bit and find some unity? And so we read in Psalm 119.63, I am a friend of all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. And as you heard from Psalm 119 this morning, if you read through the whole thing, it's just a thesaurus for the word law in many ways. Uh, richly stated, your precepts, your law, your commands, uh, your, it's, it's all over the place. Your, I see law, law, law. It's, um, they're, just keep looking. You'll find them. You'll find the effects of that, that in that uh, I'm going to broaden my understanding, in that I'm going to come closer to you. All of these different ways that that has an effect on us when we're rooted in what God has given us as his way to live. That's what's being stated there. And if you look at this passage... It highlights, I think, two Reformation themes that are important. One of them is the one we've already pointed out, Scripture alone. Scripture is our authority. The other one we haven't brought up yet, but we should, the priesthood of all believers. Let's talk about that. So verse 63, 
And, and when it comes to sola scriptura, we find here, in, in God's word, we find the truth. That's where we'll start. I'm a friend of, of all who fear you, of those who follow your precepts, your law. And we can use this idea, God's word, in God's word we find truth, uh, that word can be used in multiple senses, uh, theologically. It can be used sort of with a small w, uh, that as simply scripture, like we're talking about this morning. That is this book that we're holding here that tells us who God is. That it's God's gift in that sense. Let's recognize that. Scripture is God's gift. And more importantly, it's God's revelation to us. So sometimes you'll hear people describe the Bible as if it's a biography, a book written by humans about God. But that's not what we're actually given in Scripture. We're given an autobiography. It's God's revelation to us. It's God's gift. We, even though there's the divine inspiration of human authors, it's the divine inspiration of those human authors that matters. And the information we receive about God, we could have gotten from no other source than God. That's what we're led to believe by God's word. It's autobiography, not biography. Let's make sure we're on the same page because that is part of what brings us to the unity point. But we can also use word... That, that uh, God's word, we find truth in that, in the sense that we can use it in a big W sense, like John uses in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And there we get something even deeper. Here we have God's logic, God's reason, visibly seen for not only what God has been up to, but what God plans to do. We're given that insight in Scripture, but we visibly can now see it in Jesus Christ, and we're given access to it through Jesus Christ. And so in the Word, we discover the Word. In the small w word, we discover the Word, Jesus, and what God is up to. And now we have access to the Father. In God's Word, we also find unity. Of course, there was a lot of division that came from the Reformation. An awful lot of division. It's, once the gates were open, it's like you couldn't close them. People kept exploring the freedom they all of a sudden had, which is what happens when people get that kind of freedom. And if you look around, uh, where, we, where we can start to see the unity, though, is if you start to look around, even just locally. I don't know if you've ever gone to our website and looked at our statement of beliefs, and then you can go compare it to the statement of beliefs of other churches in town, you can see that there are an awful lot of times when there's an awful lot of unity of belief. Even if the wording is differently different, uh, there are a lot of churches like us in town where what they state about God, the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, and also uh, salvation only through Jesus Christ, but particularly the key point for all of that is what they say about the Bible. There's actually a lot of unity. We might state slightly differently what it means, uh, you know, different words that come in there, inerrant and all those sorts of words, and what we mean by those. But if we believe that it's the inspired word of God, as Second Timothy tells us, there seems to be a lot of unity we can find in some of the other essential beliefs. It's where that particular belief disintegrates or changes from autobiography to biography, where we start to see all the divergence happens. So there's actually unity that comes through the Reformation in that way, in an unexpected way. Uh, the great and late uh, 
church historian Kenneth Scott Latterett in his massive church history book, he points out that Protestantism by the 20th century had shown that it's actually fairly robust and more unified than we think. So he says, now, by the 20th century, he says, Protestantism was proving extremely flexible without surrendering the basic beliefs about God and the purpose, nature, and meaning of his revelation in Christ, which the majority of Christians had formulated in the first five centuries of Christianity. You see, God's revelation provides a sure foundation for us. And once you start messing with that foundation of God's word, the house starts to crumble. It does provide a level of unity, at least a starting point to go forward. Now, the third thing that I would point out, we're saying in God's word, we find truth, we find unity, we find true identity. And this is where we can add in the priesthood of all believers. We are, this is God's design, we're supposed to be in communion with God. That's the intent, that's been the point from the beginning, that God would be in close communion with us. Sin messed up that picture, still confounds it to this day. And in the Old Testament, what you see is a progression of, from the very early days, that a person could function as their own priest going before God to make atonement for sins. But the sacrificial system is put in place in a broader way, and God gives that system. And then priests are put in place. What is a priest but a person who does the work of the people before God and goes before God on behalf of the people? That's what a priest is doing, an intermediary, right? In Jesus Christ, we get the great high priest who goes before God and does the ultimate sacrifice for us, so we don't have to keep doing this. But what that does is it unlocks something that Peter talks about, the fact that as the church, we're all the priests now. We are our own priests. We can go before God, but we function as God's priests to the world to bring them in to communion with God. That's what we're supposed to do. And we get this from 1 Peter 2, and I'll read 5, 6, and 9, where Peter writes, You also, and he's writing to the church, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Verse 9, But you are a chosen people, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You ever think of yourself as a priest? First of all, you're saints if you've said yes to Jesus Christ. That puts you in that category. And secondly, if you've said yes to Jesus Christ... You're all priests in the house today. You want to say it to yourself? I'm a priest. Try it. Some of you are. All right. I can hear it. I'm a priest. What that does, not only does it give us the responsibility to be priests within the world, to draw others into the relationship with God, but first and foremost, it gives us the responsibility to find our communion with God. We have not just the the option, but the responsibility. Do you hear the difference? We have a responsibility as priests to make sure we are in communion with the Holy One who's called us to himself. So we have that responsibility as priests. Secondly, we have a responsibility to God's people. And both of those require that we're standing on this firm foundation of God's word then, that we can find that unity to be his 
priests to be the ones who look out and draw people in, and that's the foundation we stand on. God's word, you see, draws us back to God's work. That's what we're supposed to do. I had never searched for this until this week. Uh, I searched how many translations of the Bible are there in English, or some sentence like that. Uh, Probably the more convoluted version of that sentence, because I write long sentences that run on. The first, the American Bible Society, I was astounded by this number, and I'm not sure I'm quite in belief yet, said there are 900 English translations that have been created since 1526. Some of those are probably partial, you know, or just components. Uh, But even if you did the Google search later today and said how many English translations uh, and just skipped the American Bible Society and went to the next one down, you find that there's at least 100 in the usual lists of English translations that are uh, either actively or passively have been in use since about 1526. That's a lot of them. Martin Luther, one of the contributions that he did give is that uh, in his time, he did translate the Bible into German. And with the combination of the printing press uh, at the time, that meant that it could get out very widely. Um, Even into the countryside where literacy was quite low, it sold really well all over. Uh, People wanted to copy this. Of course, there weren't many books to be had, but especially a contemporary German version of the Bible, and my understanding is that it contributed to the development of the German language as well, was a really hot seller. People wanted this. And we can recognize that what it also did was, now if he's saying we stand on scripture, I've translated the scripture, I've questioned some of the theology of the church, now you have the tool with which you can read and see, was I right? This is why, of course, some of the division came too. People started to do this and came to different conclusions. But 1517, if we keep, keep track of this, I want to give you a historical example of when, when we've stepped away from Scripture and stepped back, what changes. When we step away, we have problems. And in 1517, the, the Reformation on Luther's end begins. Luther was a dynamic leader, even if he was uh, kind of only had a handful of themes that he went on about. And even if some of those themes, he went a little or a lot overboard, and he would even tell you as much, uh, took them kind of beyond their logical conclusion, uh, he did some remarkable things, and he had a following that, that followed him. They, by 1530, they put together a thing called the Augsburg Confession that kind of uh, pointed out what the Lutheran church believed. Um, but by 1546, Luther died. So now you have this movement that's going on, but it didn't really have a dynamic leader to take over. It had some people who took over, certainly. But they had a couple issues that kind of took them from sort of this living organism to something that was a little less than that as this new church. First of all, they did have a a creed, if you will, the confession that I talked about, and they had Luther's writings, and they could read those, because not all of them got burned. They had them around, and he wrote more after that. But they didn't have the same charismatic leader leading them, so what was a dynamic movement was becoming more static. Now, in our day and age, we might say, well, if the church isn't satisfying my needs or not doing things right, we can walk down the street to the church down the street, right? And I don't even want to comment on on how easily we do that right now, too easily. But in Luther's day, you couldn't. Not not easily and not without great penalty. Because they also, remember this is the Holy Roman Empire, they're living in these states ruled by kings or princes or local rulers. And 
I'm not a Latin speaker, but quius regio eius religio was what they lived by, whose realm, whose religion. Whatever religion your leader had, that was yours too. You couldn't choose another one, at least not without great penalty. Um, and people did try in the Reformation era, but sometimes they paid with their lives. So it was a big step to go to the church down the street, if you will. What, what ends up happening then, what, what, what can revive even a hundred years after Luther? You've already got a, a rather stale organism in some ways. Dry, polemic, technical. It's, it's about what the clergy knows again, not about the people engaged with the text. Well, what enters into that is directly part of our roots, a thing called pietism. Uh, real, the pioneer of this was a guy named Philip Jakob Spainer. For anybody looking for names for kids in the future, that's a good one, right? Philip Jakob Spainer or dogs, either one. Um, lived in the 1635s when he was born. He wrote a work in the mid-1600s called Pia Desideria. It was really more of an introduction to a book. And we cover this in the membership class if anybody's interested in taking the next one. And it put a stress on six things that he saw that were missing in the Lutheran church. I'll rifle through them quickly, but then we'll, we'll come back to two of them. He said, what we're missing and what we need is an intensive study of the whole Bible, not just Sunday morning stuff. That's good. We need more. We need people to be fully engaged. He said, we need to emphasize the spiritual priesthood of all believers. It's not just what the clergy can do on stage. It's the lay people engaged with the word actively and alive and in church and in faith. He said what we need is the practice of Christianity, not just the knowledge, not just the doctrine. It's great if you know the theology, but that doesn't do anything in your everyday life. You've got to live it. We've got to figure out ways to do that. He says we need to limit doctrinal polemics. That is to say it's more of the knowledge part. It's not just knowledge. It's, there's got to be an inner transformation that takes place within us. He says, and then this is education of, of those next two. It's the next result of that. He says, we need an emphasis on practical piety for the pastors that we teach, not just theological knowledge. You can see the theme there. And he says, finally, and this we hear a great amen from even our people, simplicity and directness in preaching, please. That's what we want. Don't just wax eloquent, right? Deliver a sermon that's going to be effective, that's going to edify people that they can do something with. So you, you can ask the question, okay, if the Lutheran church has become kind of rote, kind of dry, people are just coming and going, how do these impact that? Well, what, what Spainer and others did was they lived this out in what's been around, it's not a new idea, it's been around for the, in the church since the very beginning, small groups. That's what they did. They said, we're going to do this stuff in small groups. It's the church within the church. We're not breaking away. We're still part of the church. We're just going to have small groups that meet during the week. And we sing together and we study the word together and we pray for one another and we support one another. And that's how we're going to do this. That's how we're going to live this out. He tried it and it worked. There was a spiritual hunger among the people still. They wanted more. They wanted to be able to engage with this German translation of the Bible and use it. And they did. But, but stepping away from that, stepping away from, from the use of that, meant that they had to rely on all of Luther's stuff, and that didn't work. They needed to rely on the scripture is what they needed. And so Spainer brings that back. And if we look at this list, we might look at it and say, it looks a little, yeah, it looks useful, it looks okay. From a political standpoint, if you're a leader in the region, what was going on in the Lutheran churches that wasn't this meant stability. 
met people who aren't going to challenge you or challenge the system or change. This, these were dangerous ideas, by the way. These were wildly dangerous ideas, and they saw them as wildly dangerous ideas. And if you dig into the history more, you see, yeah, they, uh, even when it made it to Sweden in our history, uh, there were laws made against this kind of stuff. When you put the Bible in the hands of the people, they change. They grow. It's a remarkable thing. When you step away, they don't. In God's Word, you see, we find truth, unity, and true identity. Isn't it remarkable? 900 English translations of the Bible, or even just 100 of the list. I was reminded as I thought about that uh, of Aesop's fables, and I, I can't remember which animal it is. It's the fox, and he has other animals he talks to uh, who say, I've only got one escape route. And the fox says, Oh, I got all kinds of them. I, got, I, got, just, I can't even tell you how many I have. And the little squirrel or the cat or whoever, finally a predator comes and the cat uses the one. I'm going to go up a tree. That's the only one I know. And the fox says, well, I've got all these different escape routes. I can't figure out which one to use. And he gets eaten. (laughs) At least a hundred translations of the Bible in English. That's no good unless we access them, is it? To be debilitated by all the choices. My my philosophy with Bible translations is use them. Use any and all of them at your disposal. Compare them, study them, work in groups with them. Do what's listed on this list in front of us. We're called to be people of the book who read this, who digest it, who live it. That's what sola scriptura means. And also, to be the priesthood of believers, to understand that we have this responsibility to draw close to the God who calls us to himself. And part of that is our responsibility to his revelation to us and to his people doing the same thing together. Are we living that reality? You see, the results are clear. When we step away from Scripture, we step away from God's best and God's most fulfilling things for us, God's most fulfilling way in life. We step away from communion with God, from God's purpose, and even we end up stepping away from truth and unity and our true identity. But when we step towards Scripture, that's when we discover who God has created us to be, who God has called us to be, and what God has called us to do because of it. Let's pray together. Father, may our foundation be your word. That in your word, scripture, we discover your word, Jesus Christ. That through your son, we would have access to you, our father. That through Jesus Christ, we discover our redemption and our reconciliation where sin has tried to break that. God, today as you call us to yourselves, or yourself, help us be good students of your word. Help us engage understanding our responsibility to open your word, to be your priests, to be in communion with you, but then to work with one another, to find unity, and from there to look outward, to find those who are far from you and help them turn towards you. Father, empower us today to be those priests. For those of us who are sitting and and have never called ourselves priests, Father, because we've never decided to follow you, call us to yourself. And Father, for those of us who have actually said yes to you, maybe even over and over, help us live into that responsibility to be your priests.
May we, in our faithfulness, be faithful to you, and may we, in our faithfulness to you, bring others closer to you in communion. We pray this in your name. Amen.